I'm Pastor Dan. I'm Pastor Matt's dad. And uh, that's that's uh, quite an honor, frankly. And I'm happy to be here with you today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 12 this morning. So if you want to dial that up, we're going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 14. Then we're going to move to verses 38 through 42. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions... Whoops. When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God, and his, his, and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Excuse me, I skipped a couple of verses there. I think the wind blew those two verses away. Did you see them going that way? Going on from that place, let me pick that up. He went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Then he talks about the sheep and, and helping the sheep. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. We'll move to verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of God and we believe it. The key verse, the key thought in this passage is found in verse 7 where God speaks through the prophet Hosea and Jesus quotes him here I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We moved to Chapel Hill in 1987 to plant a new church, Chapel Hill Wesleyan Church. We built the building up on Sunrise Road that you know as the foundry. Love Chapel Hill is the reimagined and reinvented version of Chapel Hill Wesleyan Church on Franklin Street. You were doing everything we dreamed about doing, okay? Couldn't pull it off. We thought we were coming here because God called us here to plant that church. I think he called us here to get Matt here to Chapel Hill. But anyway, I fully expected when I moved to Chapel Hill that I was moving to a completely secular community. That's what it looked like from the outside in. Imagine my surprise when I got here and found this to be one of the most religious communities I've ever lived in. I'm not talking primarily about the representation of world religions in the town, which you would expect in a, a university city, the class of Chapel Hill. And that's part of what Chapel Hill is, but I'm actually talking about the dominant belief systems in this town. They wouldn't call them religion, but belief systems that you order your life by and give your life to are basically religions. I found it everywhere. What impacted me most, I think, is that our friends in town, can I say this? seemed to want everything Jesus had to offer. They just didn't seem to want Jesus. So, the belief systems that dominate Chapel Hill. Let's take modern science, for example. It is a system of belief. You have to have as much faith in some of the postulates of modern science as you do to practice your Christian faith. And that becomes a religion for some people. Uh, the health sciences. The health sciences are a belief system based on the belief that chemicals react a certain way in the human body and therefore we believe when we inject them or insert them or introduce them, they're going to have a certain effect on the human body. That's a belief system. Uh, political science. Political science, Dr. Chris, is a belief system. It is, in fact, it is an attempt to explain all those belief systems out there that people believe so strongly in and are very evangelistic about. They try to win other people to their belief system 
and Dr. Clark stands in front of a class every classroom day to try to help people understand how these all fit together and where they don't fit together and where they clash, their belief systems. Our modern education system is a belief system. It has evolved, you can decide whether it's progression or regression. It has evolved from primarily being a delivery system for information and knowledge to now being a delivery system for philosophy and attempt to remake people in our own image. I thought somebody else already had that job. Um, humanism is a belief system and it exalts human rights and human reason above everything else and that's the grid through which everything is judged. The tensions in our culture today are the result of clashes of belief system, systems. Whatever it is, whatever belief it is that produces a spirit of white supremacy or a, the Proud Boys or Antifa or Black Lives Matter or the CRT crowd or whatever, and I'm not being critical of efforts toward justice here, I'm just saying they are belief systems that people buy into and those belief systems clash. There is some grain of truth in every one of them, although for some of them you really have to search to find that grain of truth. And wherever they are true and merciful, they reflect the character of God. Wherever they are ugly and divisive and destructive, and uh, bring um, tension and division and whatever other clarifying words you want to put in there, wherever they exclude the character and goodness and mercy of God, they are without God and become a more or less false religion of false belief system. Well, Jesus ran headlong into those systems represented by the Pharisees in the passage of Scripture that we read. And where there is goodness and faithfulness found in those, Jesus would have no problem with them. You understand that, right? He's the Creator. He's the Lord. The good things were His idea to begin with. He has a problem with it when he is excluded from the conversation, when he's put on the sideline, when he's considered problematic or inconsequential and too unsophisticated to be taken seriously and so snubbed by us in our intellectual pride. He has a problem when we, we reject him and substitute our own version of religion that excludes him. 
In the key verse in this passage, Hosea speaks for God, and Jesus quotes him, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The people Jesus is talking to prefer to do religious stuff. God preferred that they had mercy on the hurting people around them. They preferred to make sacrifices that cost them a little bit of something and made them feel good about themselves. God preferred they help their neighbor who was hungry. They, in essence, made up their own religion because it made them feel good and substituted that for the true worship of their merciful God. Their religion might cost them a little of their money or possessions, but it cost them nothing of themselves. Religious people always make up their own self-serving and self-glorifying religion, and Jesus has a problem with that. Jesus has a problem with religious people. That's what I want us to explore this morning. What religion is dominating your world right now? And where does Jesus fit in to that? In Matthew 12, the Pharisees were acting up again. Jesus and his disciples were just going about their daily routine, walking wherever they went. The disciples were hungry. As they passed the grain field, they grabbed hands, hands full of grain, thresh it out a little bit and pop it into their mouths and eat it for a snack. Now, there was nothing wrong with that. Gleaning is a time-honored uh, process or practice in agrarian societies. There was no problem with them doing that, except that this was Saturday, the Sabbath. And to these religious Pharisees, the disciples were breaking the law by working on the Sabbath, by harvesting grain. I try to live myself a very careful life. I live by a code that I hope honors God and is based in Scripture and helps me um, maintain proper boundaries between me and the people around me and hopefully makes me a blessing to the people around me. That's a good thing. And it's a practice that I recommend to everybody. What I don't recommend is that we try to impose those personal convictions on other people. That's what the Pharisees were doing here. There are certain elevated moral principles we all recognize as being right and expected of everyone who lives according to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Then there are those lesser issues, items of behavior that we adopt to express our faith and our faithfulness in practical ways. There is sometimes broad acceptance of those, sometimes not so broad acceptance. There's never universal acceptance of those lesser things. Those rules, you know, those rules 
that we learn to live by. Like the rule I learned in college, don't smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do. I threw that in there to aggravate your pastor. When he hears it, he's going to go, eh. He expects me to behave. I can't behave all the time. The Pharisees were driven by their rules. They were driven by the conviction that there was only one way to live, their way, and to accomplish their mission, they just had to try to micromanage everybody else's life. Their intentions, I don't know if they were noble or not. I doubt it. Maybe originally. But they became insufferably legalistic. Suffocating. Stifling. In their effort to protect the moral code that's represented in the Ten Commandments, they came up with hundreds of legal requirements for people to observe. And Jesus had a problem with them, and he, had a, and he loved to mess with them, frankly. In the encounters recorded in Matthew 12, he takes on four of their treasured idols, the temple, the law, the chosen people status of Israel, and the promised prosperity to those who keep the commandments. Religion, rules, riches, and rights and privileges. To each of these, Jesus says, something greater is here. You're missing the point something greater is here, he says to them. Now, they could never fathom any concept that assumed there was something greater than the temple, right? In fact, that would be blasphemy to them. The temple represented everything glorious and awesome and beautiful and transcendent about God and the Jewish religion. And Jesus honored all of that but he came to show us that the temporal and physical representations of God and religious expression point to a greater reality. They loved and revered the temple. Jesus came to show us how to love the God represented by the temple. They loved the sacrifices offered in the temple. Think about this. Jesus came to show us the mercy offered us by God who loves us so much that he would sacrificially give his only begotten son for our salvation on the cross. They loved their religion. Jesus came to show us how to move beyond religion into a relationship with God himself. They not only loved their religion, they loved their rules. They found a great measure of personal satisfaction in keeping the rules. They found a great measure of personal satisfaction in making sure everybody else kept the rules. They've always found ways to attack, subvert, undermine, and confront any attempt 
to step outside the rules. Is it not stunning to read about these fastidious religious rule keepers, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Jesus is a problem for rule makers and rule keepers because he won't play by their rules. And that made them so angry that they made plans to kill him. If you ever need to test whether your religion is on target or not, I would think that if it drives you to want to kill somebody because they don't agree with you, you might not be on the right path. Now the disciples did technically break the rules when they harvested the hands full of grain on the Sabbath. It's interesting to me here, I'll just throw this in, that Matthew in recording the the event says it was the disciples but not Jesus who did it. He just always gets everything right. But there's no mercy in the spirit of the Pharisees. It didn't matter if people are hungry. You can't break the rules. Those are our religious rules. But you can't plot to kill someone if they disagree with you. That's not against the rules. It's never wrong to do the right thing. It's never right to do the wrong thing. How could they not understand that? It is religious to love rules and rule people. It is righteous to appreciate rules, but to love God and have mercy on people. Something greater than the temple is here, Jesus says. And he implies something greater than the law is here. We're going to skip over the Jonah statement for a moment and go to Solomon. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. Now Solomon st stands at the pinnacle of power and prosperity in the history of Israel. Among other things, he's honored in their history because he built the first temple. And you know his story, this guy had it all. But for Jesus, there's something greater than all the glory and splendor Solomon enjoyed. The Pharisees expected and taught that prosperity was a clear sign of God's blessing in a person's life. If you were prosperous, it was because you kept the rules and God rewarded you for that. If you keep the rules, you would be rich. Money shows up a lot in the Bible. Have you noticed that? But it doesn't show up in very good ways. Have you noticed that? They were measuring righteousness by prosperity. God uses money to expose unrighteousness, if you read the scriptures. Money is like manna. You remember during their wilderness wanderings, God fed them bread from heaven every day. They would go out and, and the ground would be covered with this angel food, whatever it was. And they would pick it up. The, the word in their language literally means 
What? It means, what is this? God gave the instruction that they had enough for the day, but they were not to try to save some for the next day. If they tried to save it, it spoiled. They would get up the next day, and there it was, bread from heaven. Again, everything they needed for that day. Well, money is like manna. If you try to hang on to it, it spoils and stinks up the place. Turn loose of it. When you do, lo and behold, you get up the next morning, and there's more money there that you have no idea where it came from. But you proved yourself to be strong of character, a person of faith who could trust God, and someone who could be trusted with things entrusted to you and generous of heart. And God, the ultimate giver, honors your faithfulness and trusts you then with more. How we handle our money is a great testimony to our faith as a Christian. Take giving, for example. The law established a standard of expectation for those under the law, that they return 10% of what they receive from the Lord as an offering back to Him. But one greater than the law is now here. So the law no, no longer has authority to make that demand. But grace always outdoes the law, right? So Paul can say to those under grace and no longer under the law, each one should give what he has determined in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We give not out of demand to meet a standard of expectation. We give out of mercy to meet the need. So something greater than the temple and its religion is here. Something greater than the law and its rules is here. Something greater than Solomon and all his riches is here. And something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah is an Old Testament prophet who ran from God because in his opinion God was going to offer mercy to the people of Nineveh, those unwashed heathen. And they didn't deserve mercy. They were the enemies of Israel. They deserved judgment. If they got mercy, they would just become stronger. You don't want your enemy to become stronger. He wasn't going to be a part of that, so he hightailed it out of town. The favor of God was supposed to rest on Israel. Favor was the right and privilege for the chosen people. How do we get to the place where we're so sure and proud of our place in the world that we allow that to develop a haughty and arrogant spirit in us that convinces us that we're better than other people? How do we get there? You know the rest of the Jonah story, the storm, the fish, the three days, all of that. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, so short on mercy, 
You need to learn from Jonah. Show us the sign they had taunted him. These religious, calloused people, these Pharisees, not only plotted his death, but Matthew records in chapter 26, verses 41 through 44, that they joined the chief priests and teachers of the law, standing at the foot of the cross, taunting him as he hung there. If he's the Son of God, let him show us by saving himself. What kind of person taunts a dying person? Well, they were blind to it, but he did exactly what they asked for. As he prophesied here, he gave them the sign of Jonah. The story of Jonah may make you squirm a little bit, okay? There's this guy who's thrown overboard to appease the storm, and the storm abates, and a fish eats him, and he lives for three days in the belly of this fish, and then the fish gets sick of him and vomits him up on the land. What did he smell like? Who can believe that story, really? Listen, there's one answer, one ultimate answer to skepticism about the miraculous. And it's this. If you can accept the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, no other miracle story should give you a problem. If God can do that, he can do any of the others. Okay? You know how important that is? We Christians put it right out there. We lay it all on the line. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Ours is not a faith based on ideas and teachings. Ours is a faith grounded in history. Ours is not a concept-driven faith. Ours is a person-driven faith. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, buried, dead, and risen, and living forevermore. There's something greater than Jonah for us, and greater than the temple, and greater than the law, and greater than all the wisdom and riches of Solomon. Let religion mildew and fade away. Let rules crumble like sand. Let money rot. Let rights and privileges be blown away like dust. We have received and offer to all a life-changing, love-filled relationship with the God of the universe through His eternal Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and nothing is greater than that. So what's dominating your world right now? What's trying to push itself between you and God? 
I want to be real careful and real sensitive here. I'm not just trying to make a preaching point, okay? I'm preaching out of the compassion of my heart. None of us knows what's represented in this crowd, okay? Jesus is here to say that something greater than that illness or that threat or that pain is here. Something greater than cancer is here. Something greater than depression is here. Something greater than injustice is here. Something greater than financial need is here. Something greater than addiction is here. Something greater than betrayal is here. Something greater than family discord is here. Something greater than fear is here. Something greater than discouragement is here. Something greater than bondage or beatings or bullying is here. Something greater than even death is here. Whatever might be trying to dominate your life, something greater is here. We all struggle. Our lists are going to look different than each other's lists, but we all struggle. And we all need mercy from God and from each other. Our hearts hurt for each other when we see each other experiencing pain and suffering and need. So what do we do about all this? Let's do like John Wesley. He lived in a time of pain and suffering and need. He was no stranger to it. His response was, as he said in one entry in his journal about a visit to a certain town, I came into the town and offered them Christ. Let's go into Chapel Hill that is so focused on religion and rules and riches and rights and privileges, and let's offer them Christ, the merciful Christ. The Christ who died and rose again and lives to ever intercede for us. He's the only one that can save. Let's receive from him the mercy he offers for our healing and strength. Then let's go into Chapel Hill in a spirit of humble mercy and offer them Christ. Our name is our mission. To love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus, let's go love them to Jesus.